Tonight we're going to be studying the book of Isaiah, and it feels uh, like a daunting task to jump on Isaiah and do so in one sitting and try to cover thematically what this book covers. But we are going to take a run at it. Isaiah is probably the most famous of the prophets in the Bible. I mean, you don't even have to be a Christian. If somebody said, you name a prophet, you might could come up with Isaiah. You could show up at Christmas time and hear passages from Isaiah. You, you have heard Isaiah. You know it. But tonight what I hope to do is maybe get some background and explore it a little deeper. Before I say a word of prayer and get started, a couple of things to be aware of going toward the weekend. This Sunday evening, we don't typically have service on Sunday night, but this Sunday evening we'll have a special service for our deacon ordination. We have six deacons to ordain, and I hope that you'll be there. It'll be a great service. It'll be a worship service. We'll sing together. I'll preach, ordain the deacons into our diaconate here at Hickory Grove. Hope you'll be there. Then we'll have a reception uh, after the deacon ordination on Sunday night. All right, let me say a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your good grace given to us in Jesus. We thank you for the forgiving grace of Jesus, for the sustaining grace of Jesus. We thank you that because we are in Jesus, our sins are taken away. The righteousness that Christ has earned is ours. Shame and guilt have been removed. We can walk freely and joyfully. We thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would I pray that you would remind brothers and sisters in Christ tonight. And I pray that you would have our eyes go off the page of the Bible up to your magnificent glory. So help us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you open up the book of Isaiah, it is 66 chapters and it feels like a daunting book to read. I'm, I'm going through the Old Testament now and my Bible reading plan and uh, have gotten into numbers. Numbers feels long, but it's in the 30s. Isaiah has 66 chapters. Isaiah, if you have looked at the prophets, you'll have a major prophets and a minor prophets. Major prophets, nothing more than the big books. That's why they're called the major prophets. Not because they carry more weight or have more truth, just because they're bigger. Major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you might even put Daniel as a major prophet, just because they're bigger. When you read uh, Isaiah, it can, it can be easy to get bogged down in Isaiah because it feels repetitive. It's 66 chapters of, of poetry. So what you find in Isaiah is poetry, you find oracles, and you find prophecy. Po poetry, oracles, and prophecy. If I had to give you a basic outline, uh, and when I mean basic, I mean real basic, Isaiah is split up into chunks. So from chapter 1 to chapter 35, here's a basic outline. From chapter 1 to chapter 35, you have poetry, you have prophecy, you have teaching about God and God's expression to his people. So it starts right off. When you start reading it, it is about God. In fact, if you have Isaiah, let's just flip around a good bit in Isaiah tonight. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, 
which he saw concerning Judah, Jerusalem, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I mean, that's in the very opening. Who it's from, who it's to, and what God is doing. He is speaking. Isaiah is one of those books, when you open it up from chapter 1 to 35, uh, you, you, we're reminded of the power of God's Word. We're reminded that we have a God that has revealed Himself to us. We are reminded that our God is not silent. We don't have to wonder what is the right way and what is the wrong way. He has revealed Himself to us. So, chapters 1 through 35 are prophecy poetry about God and God's revelation. He reveals Himself. Chapters 36 to 39 are like a parenthesis. Chapters 36, 37, 38, 39, there are four chapters in Isaiah of history. If you like history, you're reading Isaiah, you think, I mean, it's disorienting because you don't know what's going on. And then you get to chapter 36, and it's just four chapters. No more prophecy, there's not any poetry, it is just straight history. 36, 37, 38. 39. And then it picks back up. Chapter 40, from chapter 40 to chapter 46, that's another chunk. Chapter 40 to chapter 46, it's more poetry and prophecy. You might look at it like this. The first half of Isaiah from chapter 1 to verse 35 is, is pretty negative. When you read it, it's hard to find the positive chapters 1 to 35. So if you're in a reading plan and you're reading through the Bible, you get Genesis and Exodus and you work through Leviticus and when you get deep into Leviticus, some of the rules about skin sores, I mean, it, it's hard to have a quiet time and that'd be something really special for you. Sometimes when you're reading in, in Isaiah, it can feel really negative. So the first half is more negative. And then from chapter 40 to chapter 66... You start, sensing a, you start sensing hope, even in the midst of terrible times. This book is written, uh, we're still sort of, I'll just give you extra information before we get to the date. This book was written to a specific people, the tribe of Judah. If you remember the people of Israel, God's people, Jacob is named Israel. All of the Jews come from Israel. Israel splits into two, two Israel and Judah, Israel, the northern tribe will fall, Judah will hold on, and this is written to Jerusalem and Judah. So you'll hear sometimes uh, calling them Israel. They are still Israel, the people of God, but Israel divided into Judah and Israel, called Judah. Here in Isaiah, you're going to find all kind of unusual things. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 14, if you want to turn there, where we, how we think of Satan as a fallen angel comes largely from Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 and following. This is where it comes from. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down from the ground. You who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. 
I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you. I'll stop there. That's where our understanding of how Satan fell. That, that's a large part of where it comes from in the book of Isaiah. Who would have thought that? There's something else about Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 20, before I get to the dates, uh, I want to just kind of put this in here. Isaiah chapter 20, I want you to look and see what God called him to do. In the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. At that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist, take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, My servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign. Let me stop there. Now, I got a hard job. I mean, sometimes my, my job is difficult. The Lord has never called me to take my shoes off and walk naked as a sign. Isaiah, for three years. Now, we don't think about this around Christmas time when we're reading Isaiah chapter 7. Is the feedback there? Did I get too close to something? Okay. Yeah, uh, Isaiah walked for three years absolutely naked. I wasn't sure where to fit that in the outline, but I want you to have it. Because it's an interesting piece of knowledge about the prophet Isaiah. Now, let's talk about the date. Let's go through the outline like we should. If you're going to date the book of Isaiah or the prophet Isaiah, the date of Isaiah is around 760 B.C. It's going to work backwards, remember. 760 B.C. up to about 700 B.C. Headed this way. So from 760 B.C., 700 B.C., if you know Bible history, you know that during that time, there's a whole lot that has happened, that the northern tribe, Israel, is going to fall to the Assyrians. So during Isaiah's preaching to Judah, he knows that the people of God called Israel, they are taken away. And so the intensity of his preaching picks up as you read the book of Isaiah. In the time of his preaching, he uh, sat under five different kings. We see his calling in Isaiah chapter 6. So there are five, five different kings reigned in the southern kingdom of Judah during his preaching ministry. It's a long preaching ministry. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah uh, chapter 6. It's one of the most, there are lots of famous passages in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 is this famous missionary passage you know, what's funny about Isaiah, it's so beautiful and there's so many beautiful things and passages and so often the passages are actually used out of context. They're preached in such a way that, hey, they sound great. It's not what it meant when it was written. Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died. So Uzziah had been the king for around 50 years. He dies, Isaiah is called. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. He's having a vision. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him are the seraphim, these angelic beings. 
Each had six wings. With two he covered his face as not to see the holiness of God. With two he covered his feet as not to uh, see the profaneness of his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's a song that's sung all throughout. They were still singing it in Revelation when John writes. And Isaiah tells us in verse 4, The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke. I said, Woe is me. I am lost, or I certainly prefer undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the, the God of armies. We've had a king that's stable and kept us out of trouble. We know the northern kingdom has fallen. Now God has given me a vision to see the God of armies. God is who I trust. That's what he's saying here. So God will speak. The seraphim will come and burn his mouth. Verse 6, the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that has been taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. When you're reading in the Old Testament, you'll see that over and over again in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers that the sacrificial system, the atoning, the taking away of sin, the taking away the wrath of God. And look at the commission. Oftentimes we use this for missionaries. It's not very hopeful. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to the people. Here's the message. It's not a hopeful message. Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, the blind, their eyes blind lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah said, how long do I have to do this? And the Lord says, until cities lie waste. There's destruction coming. You know, the great thing about evangelical Christians, we always kind of live with hope. We're, we're pointing to the gospel. There's always going to be a better day. And at funerals, you'll hear somebody say, keep your fork because it only gets better. It, it may not. This call is for Isaiah to go and preach without any real, and that's why I say it's negative from chapter 1 up to chapter 39. But sometimes it's, it's like that. That's how Isaiah started his ministry when Uzziah died. Let me just run you through the kings real quick. Uh, so you have a, kind of a handle on what was going on in Judah. So Isaiah begins with Uzziah's death. Uzziah had a son. His name was Jotham, J-O-T-H-A-M. Jotham lived 16 years, and he pretty well did what Uzziah did. It was a lot of stability. The kingdom was going great. Jotham then had a son. Uh, Jotham's son was named Ahaz. This happens a whole lot. Have a really good king whose kid grows up and becomes a really bad king. Ahaz is a really bad king. He makes several terrible decisions. The Assyrians, meanwhile, are growing stronger. They've gobbled up the northern kingdom, and they bring the southern kingdom, Judah. Ahaz becomes a vassal to this big Assyrian army. He's just paying tribute. He's doing whatever they say. That's what uh, happens 
in Judah with Ahaz. Ahaz, who's a bad king, this doesn't seem fair, does it? I mean, they had a good king, brought around a bad son, now a bad king. This man, Ahaz, has a son named Hezekiah. Hezekiah will become one of the greatest kings in Israel, one of the godliest kings in Israel. Hezekiah will reign for 29 years. You can go read about him in the Chronicles. Hezekiah, he, he reigns for 29 years and, and leads the people back to a, a strong belief in God. He's close to the Lord. They turn away from their idols. It's a revolution that goes on. Hezekiah then, Hezekiah has a son. Hezekiah is this great godly king. Hezekiah has a son named Manasseh. Go look up Manasseh. Manasseh is terrible. Manasseh takes his children and sacrifices them to idols, to Molech. Manasseh leads, leads the people of God back down this terrible trail. And all of this while, the Assyrians are attacking when Hezekiah is king and they're asking God to protect them. It's quite a story to read. When you read, verse, when you read chapters 36 and 37 of Isaiah, that's the history. Hezekiah is the king. The Assyrians are attacking. Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, he actually is converted. It's one of those, he was an evil man, Manasseh was. In 2 Chronicles 33, you can look it up sometime. He actually turns to the Lord in repentance but that's when the people are for a while in Assyrian exile. And what you have all the while that I've just sort of run through all these kings is a man named Isaiah who is preaching. And that's what this is. This is Isaiah speaking to kings and the kingdom while they're under siege, telling them not to turn away from God, telling them not to worship at idols, telling them not to put their trust in horses and chariots, but to put their trust in God. So with that in mind, <clears throat> I'd like to walk through a couple of themes that I have found. Some of these, uh, I've been reading a couple of books to get ready. So I read a couple of commentaries from um, the New International Commentary on the Old Testament, very helpful. Uh, also, Dever, Mark Dever has a commentary or truly a sermon book, Promises Made, Promises Kept, Old Testament, New Testament, it's been very helpful. Uh, the ESV Bible had a pretty good outline, it was very helpful. Some of these are piecemealed together. Let me just give you a couple of themes you find in the book of Isaiah. Here's the first one. Number one, God himself is the theme. God does all things for his own glory. The theme of Isaiah is God, the glory of God, and he does everything. You know, yesterday we were reminded that the power, people would say, of, of, of nature, the power of God. Just, of just seeing water and what water can do. Isaiah is a book that is about God and is about himself. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11 the Lord says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not share with another. This is a reminder. 
This is about God. Second thing runs through Isaiah. That God's people find strength only after they rest in the promises of their God. You and I find strength only when we rest in the promises of their God, uh, of our God. Isaiah preached to Judah. Judah was under siege from the Assyrians. They will eventually fall. And all Isaiah kept doing was pointing to the goodness of God. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. That's a, that's a New Testament application for our own hearts, that you and I, we find our strength and our rest in the promises of God, especially as they have been given to us in Christ. That's why we point people to Christ. There's a third thing. <clears throat> I got a bunch of these themes. Do y'all you, do you have them all or are you surprised when I give you more? I can't remember what all I gave you. Did I give you 14? Did I? Okay. All right, well, let's go through them. Number three, I thought I was, you know, springing stuff on you. You got them all, Brian, 14? Okay, yeah, number three. You ready? God's people find refreshment only as they delight in his word. God's people find refreshment when we delight in his word. Why do we press you? I mean, one of the greatest privileges we have is the, the Bible that is written in your mother tongue, whatever that is. You can go and read it. It's been translated from the original languages. You can be assured of its accuracy, and you can read and know that is God speaking to you. It is a wonderful time to be alive. If nothing more, we have the, the printed Bible. In Isaiah chapter 55, Isaiah 55, let me read that to you. Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. That is God's word. What a great thing for us to be reminded why I would challenge you. Man, you've been given a great privilege to spend time in God's word and let that be the food for your own souls. God's people find refreshment only as, you know, I know that it is good to go home sometimes and just put on some mindless show on television. Especially if you, man, if you have to think a lot, you're working and it's good just to, you don't have to think about it. Maybe you can Put it on there, and if you have your phone in your hand, you can do a couple of things at the same time that really are not, and it's, you've taken the, the rubber band off a little bit. That, that's fine, but make sure you don't do that to the neglect of feeding your own soul, of, of making sure that you are finding your refreshment. Relaxation is great. I think you need to do it, if you, especially if you're under a lot of stress, Man, do that. You need refreshment as well. And you only find refreshment in God's word. I mean, fourth thing. God is offended. 
God is offended by religious practices that come from an empty heart. Man, I've preached Isaiah 1 before. I went back and looked at the sermons. I've preached Isaiah, and there were a bunch of them, and, and they're all hard, and none of them I haven't preached here. Like, I need to preach Isaiah at Hickory Grove. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10 and following. Listen to, listen to how God is offended at empty religion. Now we're just talking to somebody, but putting on a show, just, just checking the box. It's not just bad for your soul. It is offensive to God. Let me read it to you. <clears throat> what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams, the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you the trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and all the calling all the convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and Solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates them. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will become like wool. When you read that, you get the sense that God says, it's not all that ritual I gave you. I gave you that to show you my holiness. There's more to it. Man, here is, here is a religion that is true and pure and right. When a heart is matched by action and actions reflect the heart. And to be reminded that God does not want empty religion. He is offended by that. That's one of the themes of Isaiah. Maybe a fifth one. fifth theme is God's people. This is what we have to keep looking forward. We're, as Christians, we believe that there will be, when we die, we don't just, it's not just we go to heaven, that, we, that eventually there will be a new heaven and a new earth and all of God's people will be one eternal community of worshipers. There will be no more differences. Sunday I mentioned a the theological triage. And the, the, the primary things that hold us together is Christians, what makes us Christians, and then the second-tier things that bring about denominations. There'll be no more of that. We'll all be together. And you find uh, that in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and following. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations will flow to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he might teach us his ways, 
that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. It's this promise of not just heaven, but a new heaven and a new earth. We find that in the book of Isaiah, that God's people one day become this eternal worshiping community. Let me give you a sixth thing. That God opposes human pride. God hates human pride. One of the great means of sanctification is being humbled and humiliated. God, and if God does that to you and you are embarrassed at some point and you are humbled, it, it'd be good for you just to say, God, thank you for that. Thank you for doing that. Because I don't want to be on the side that God hates. If God is opposed to the proud, I want to be on the other side. And if that means being humiliated, then it's fine. Isaiah 13, uh, verse 11. God says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of ruthlessness. Lay low. I will destroy the prideful. I don't, I don't want to be on that end. And we are all naturally prone to pride by either arrogance or thinking so much about ourselves. And it's, sanctification is getting you on the right side that God is not opposed to. The removal of, of, of pride. Let me give you a seventh theme. <clears throat> the foolish idols man creates are destined for destruction. That is all throughout Isaiah. If he served under five kings, some of them good, some of them bad. If he served under the Assyrians coming down, sieging Jerusalem, and it looking hopeless with Hezekiah praying, he, he learned some things. That the foolish idols of man are destined for destruction. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 20 and following. <clears throat> In that day... Mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they have made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man. Now you should take Isaiah 2 verse 22 and just underline it in your Bible. Look at that. That word from God that Isaiah is giving to the people of Judah who are under siege from the Assyrians. They're a great and mighty army. They're going to fall. And what does Isaiah say from God? Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For what account is he? Man, isn't that the root of so much of our trouble? Is, is our regard that we are afraid more of what people think than what God thinks. If, if that were not the case, then we would, wouldn't just confess our sin just to God. We would tell people. The reason we don't confess our sin is we're ashamed of that. We're afraid of people more than we are of God. 
if we're afraid of God more than we are people, it gives you this backbone to be able to do things, to live a certain way. And here, God speaks through Isaiah to the people. Don't have regard. He just, I put breath in his nostrils. In fact, that verse sounds a lot like what God did with Adam and Eve, doesn't it? It sounds like creation. It's a reminder that God is in control. It's a good reminder for me. It's a good reminder for you in the world we live in that God is in. Don't be afraid. God is opposed to the proud. The foolish idols that man creates are destined for destruction. I'll give you an eighth consideration. God's judgment will reduce Israel to a remnant. This is long, I know. God's judgment will reduce Israel to a remnant. And from that remnant, he will raise up a holy people. That's where all of this has been going. God's judgment will take the people of Israel who were so great when David was king and then started to slide down. You read 1 and 2 Kings and Chronicles and you see what happens to God's people. They finally will then go off into as a remnant, go off into exile, and from that remnant, God will raise up a holy people in Christ. That's the church. That's you, in Christ. That you're part of the great plan of salvation from creation to where we are now, that God has been working that. Isaiah chapter 1, I'll give you two verses here. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9 If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. Or you can flip to the middle of the Bible, uh, middle of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah chapter 40 has my favorite verse. I'm um, my favorite, but the one I quote on Sundays. Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And don't you know that, that just those two verses, Isaiah 41 and 2, if you've got to speak at a funeral, you've got to read scripture to someone that's dying. If, if God gives you the opportunity to minister to somebody's heart, or if you know someone in the depths of depression, if you have the context of Isaiah and what's happening to the people of Judah, and as God speaks to them in the midst of a siege when they're going to to end up in a terrible situation. And he says, comfort my people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. The Assyrians are going to take them. That her iniquity, look at the parallelism. Her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. He's talking about something different than just what's happening here on earth. Remember, don't be afraid of the people that have breath in their nostrils. Don't think about man. Think about the war between you and God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. She have received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What a great passage. We're reminded that God's judgment, he... Part of his plan has always been judgment on the people of God, reduced them to a remnant that were in exile, be a picture of how Christ would save. And out of that exile, Christ comes and the church is born. I'll give you a ninth theme. Ninth theme. 
gets, it gets harder here before we get to the passages we like about Christ. God sometimes judges people by making them deaf and blind to his word. Sometimes that deafness and blindness has been it's part of his judgment. And that's hard for me to get my head around that. Isaiah chapter 29, verses 9 and following. It's a good place to go for that. Isaiah 29, I'll begin in verse 9. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like words of a book that is sealed when men give it to one who can read, saying, read this. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this. And he says, I cannot. And the Lord said, because the people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people and wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise man will perish and the discernment of their discerning men will be hidden. When you read that, you think, what? Sometimes the judgment is that God makes it so that you don't get it. That's what he's doing with his people. Let me give you another theme. <clears throat> let's get to, the good, let's get to the, good, the good part. The only hope for the world is one man. The only hope. That's what I... That's, why Isaiah is so wonderful for Christians is why we love it so much. So I read it at Christmas because it reminds us the only hope for the world is one man. Let's talk about who he is. I'll go through them quickly. Number one, he is the promised Davidic king. Let's, go to, let's read some familiar passages now. Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7 verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Several hundred years, 700 years before the birth of Christ, when one part of God's people have fallen away, the southern kingdom will fall 150 years from now. And here God gives a promise. He is the promised Davidic king. Keep turning your Bible. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 and following. You know this passage. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy in the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult you have, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For, here's the promised Messiah. To us a child is born, 
to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Man, we love that passage. And to know as we look back through the annals of time, you, you see how God has given us this promise. This promise is the one that is coming, and he will be the answer to our problems. It keeps building. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. I think my favorite part of chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, when you think about the coming kingdom of God, the, the kingdom of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, is verse 6. Verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Look, I got two dogs in my house. One is an 11-year-old beagle named Spurgeon. He's old and crippled and big around. He shouldn't be that fat. He's a beagle. The, the other is a young Rottweiler named Roman. He's seven and a half months. And those two dogs get on each other's nerves so bad. And I think, what kind of miracle will it be when the wolf can be in the same stall with a lamb and the leopard's going to lie beside a goat and the calf and the lion are fattened together and a little child is going to have a little thread around their necks. It's a picture of this coming kingdom of Christ where peace reigns in all creation. That's what this picture is. When we celebrated Christmas, that's what the celebration is. He's the promised Davidic king. Christ is also the suffering servant and the saving substitute. You know the passages, right? The suffering servant, you have to also have the saving substitute. He is, I mean, here in the picture of an Old Testament temple worship is Isaiah preaching that there is one coming in Isaiah 52, this one who will bear, that one person who will take the iniquities, not an animal, that Christ will. There's, the servant. Let's, let's go to the, I have all the passages listed, but let's go to the one we, we love, Isaiah 53. Now, you know what? We got time. Isaiah 42. Let me read Isaiah 42. Part of Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold. Uh, Christians, we have historically and with good reason seeing this as a direct prophecy of Christ. All these I've given. Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42. These are direct prophecies of Jesus Christ. This is why we use them at Christmas time. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed... I mean, don't you love that passage when you think of someone that's been hurt so desperately and you can go and read this to the promise is Christ. This is who he is. This is what he'll do. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Or let's go to the good, the good passage we love. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 52 has beautiful passages in it too. Isaiah 53 is where we go and there we see the most explicit picture of Jesus written 700 years prior in a crumbling kingdom. 
Isaiah 53, I'll, I'll take your attention to verse 3, and let's just read verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Here comes the substitute. Jesus did it for us, right? Here's the substitution. Surely he has borne our griefs. You see the exchange? He takes what's ours. He has borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He takes what, what is ours, our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced. Here is substitutionary atonement. When you read the Old Testament, you see all of the animals being killed. You get through Leviticus. You'll see sins atoned for. All of that builds up to Christ as the substitutionary atoning one in Isaiah 53. <clears throat> he was pierced for our transgressions. The great exchange. He takes the punishment. We get the righteousness. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. You see the exchange? What we had was sin. He took it. What we get is peace. How did we get it? Because of his being pierced. His being chastised. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is where all of this is going. Isaiah. In the midst of, a, of Judah crumbling is the promised one who is the suffering servant and the saving substitute. I want to just kind of go down the road a little bit and end it with three or four more quick points. Because it, it, uh, the, the apex is Christ always, Isaiah 53. But there are themes that we need to remember that he is the victor. I mean, Christ will preach the gospel Isaiah 16, he's the victor over all evil. Isaiah 63. But there's something, in a, the, a theme that has popped up that I don't know that I can thread the needle, but I want to bring it to your attention. That God uses everything, even human sin, for his own glory. Maybe we'll say it like this. God eventually, someone sins against you. Think of, of Acts when the description is of the sins and how sinful it was for those that murdered Christ, but it was the, the plan of God. What you have there is a picture of God orchestrating and working and taking what is woven in the back of the tapestry. It's a terrible and it's an ugly looking piece and he puts it in there and on the top, it's, it's his finished product. That he's weaving together. You find that in Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45. And I'll just tell you what he's talking about there. He's describing an evil king, Cyrus, who is not a believer, not saved, and will be sinful. And God uses, of course he is holy and, and, and never involved in sin, but because he is, only God can take something terrible and have it a part of his perfect will. It's hard, it's hard to get our heads around that. It's where we trust that God is 
God is doing that which is good for those that love him. He's working all of those things, all of the things that are ugly and terrible and bad and good and tasteless. He's doing those and working them together for the good of those that love him according to his, called according to his purpose. Okay, that, that's a, a deep well to look in. And we have another one before I uh, close it down. All people, all people are called to repent of sin and trust in God alone. All people. When I'm preaching on Sunday mornings, I try to find a, a place in the passage when I'm doing an exposition of a passage, instead of just tacking a gospel on the end of a sermon or doing an invitation and people not clearly understanding, try to find where, where in this passage is the hook that, that brings us to the gospel. And if I can't find one, sometimes I'll just pause and say, I want to just explicitly share the gospel. Why do we do that? So that there's a clear understanding for anyone here that has ears, that a call, God requires... Every person, that's the requirement. Every person to repent of sin and to trust in God alone. Isaiah chapter, chapter 26, verse 3, the good place to go. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. It's a reminder that God calls I mean, you think about Manasseh. I didn't talk about it very much, but Manasseh, this evil king, he would turn, and God would use events and call him. That's why, that, that's why you share the gospel with your friends. That's why you have acquaintances that you work toward being able to actually share Christ. That's why we build that into the sermons. That's why we do that at our school. That's why in Awana, not just learning the Bible so you can learn a moral code, that it's taking us to the gospel. What our students are running right now, the gospel. Why? Because all people are called to repent of sin and trust God alone. Number 13. I take great comfort in this, that God is guiding all of human history. Do you, do you love history? You should love history. Even if you don't like to read you should love history and you should, you should follow it with an eye on God is doing, working. We're going somewhere. All of this is his. Every story told is being woven into the perfect developing plan of God. Developing from our perspective. It's already done for his. God is guiding all of history. Um, let me read a couple of passages. Isaiah 41 is a good place to go. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach then. Let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one of the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by the paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. He's taking all of human history somewhere. 
Isaiah 44, 6, 7, and 8. The good reminder of this as well. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set before me, since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declare it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. It is God guiding. And if he's guiding all of history, he's guiding you. History works down into the weeds of our own lives. The very events of our lives is taking us somewhere. I'll, I'll end with something strong from Isaiah. It's the last one. The wrath of God is to be feared above all else. The wrath of God. Man, I'm preaching uh, Mark chapter 9. This Sunday from verse 42 to verse 50. It's the very end of Mark chapter 9. And it's a reminder that Jesus spoke about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. Jesus spoke about hell more than he did anything else. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 42 to 50, he, he talks about um, what good is it if you have your hand or your eye or your foot and go to hell. If they're causing you to sin, chop them off. He talks about hell and he talks about the, where the worm never dies and the fire does not go out. I mean, it's vivid language. And the opening verse to that passage is Jesus says, him who makes one of, the, one of these little ones, one of these new believers, vulnerable believers, stumble, it would be better for that person if he had a millstone that was usually pulled by a donkey around his neck and that would throw him in the sea like an anchor and that rope unwind and unwind and jerk him off the boat into the bottom of the sea. Vivid language. So let's not back away from, from Isaiah reminding us that the wrath of God is to be feared. It's a good reason to cross the street and share the gospel. A couple of passages. I'll, I'll end. Let me just end with one. Let's go to the very end of the book. The very end of the book. Isaiah chapter 66. Verses 15 and 16. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots will be like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with the flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and with his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. It's a reminder that, that there's no neutrality. And when we look to the gospel of Jesus, when we think about the grace of God given to us in Jesus, it makes us remember that, yeah, we stood under the wrath of God, but that judgment has been taken away, and in its place is the love and grace and goodness and joy of being a child of God. When you read Isaiah, you remember God points us to Christ and away from judgment. 
Join me now as we close in a word of prayer. Thank you so much for listening tonight. And as you think of it, you pray for me for Sunday as I preach that passage. I want to be true to what Christ has said. Say it in a way that is honoring to the Lord, good for people, and challenging to sinners. You pray that God will use that. Join me as we pray. Father, thank you for the passage. Thank you for Isaiah and all that we read there. Thank you for pointing us to Jesus, for the great promise in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would wake us up tomorrow morning in enough time to spend some time in your word, to, to find our rest in your word, to strengthen our souls by your word, to point us to the gospel. Bring us back here Sunday, ready to worship with the church, the people you've given us to worship with. We pray that you would strengthen people's hearts. We pray that you would protect our students and children. We pray that you'd find us faithful as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.